everybody. This is William Dead Pilar, and this is Fired Up. As I always say, most of you know me because I was a fantasy sports entrepreneur and pioneer, but in my second life, I became a political junkie, worked with the Republican Party, served, got elected, became an activist, and I'm looking at the future of our country, and that's why we started Fired Up. And on this show, I'm actually pretty happy to have James Charnowski. James Charnowski is a senior policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity, a national think tank in D.C. with 35 state chapters nationwide. He writes about Section 230, antitrust, consumer data privacy, cybersecurity, and technology and innovation issues. His work has been published in Real Clear Future, The Morning Consult, Deseret News, The National Interest, the Salt Lake Tribune, the Washington Examiner, and many others. As a conservative, James, uh, I'm very familiar with the Washington Examiner, but I have to say, an extremely impressive, impressive uh, resume. Uh, but I, as I told you off camera, I love hearing different names and the culture behind them. So tell us, where does the name Charnowski come from? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and thanks for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so basically, uh, my my family from my dad's side, uh, obviously where the name comes from, they were immigrants that actually came to the United States uh, through Ellis Island. So they're in the book, and uh, yeah, they they came from Poland, and um, they had some land over there, but then fled, uh, you know, to avoid some some issues over there, and you know, they made a good home here in America. And now they're in a position where, you know, a couple generations later, I'm here. We have a very expensive family in uh, the tri-state area. And, uh, you know, my uncle goes back to Poland quite frequently. Uh, and as a native speaker of the language, uh, which I do not envy him for, because hearing Polish is just like, oh, man. And I took some languages <laughs> growing up. But, uh, no, it, it is a great honor. But even on my mom's side, also a family of immigrants, they came from Ireland um, to the United States, also through Ellis Island. So... Uh, very rich history of immigrant blood uh, going and running through our family, and uh, we're very, very proud of that. And I'm, I'm very excited to, to have that name going for me to just make everybody so confused as to how to pronounce it. <laughs> well, I tell you what, uh, I, I look young and I have great genes, and I'm proud of that. But I am a man in my early fifties. I'm lying. I'm in my mid fifties. <laughs> but growing up, we knew nothing of Poland except it was a Russian satellite. And, and in pure honesty, as kids, you know the Polish joke. So we knew nothing but as a joke. And I, and I say that for a reason. As a young adult, and then when the when the Soviet Union fell, we learned so much about how strong the Polish people are. The stories of World War Two. Uh, as a political, uh, in politics, I'm a conservative, so I see how they stand up to the EU uh, for the Polish way and for the Polish people, and I find that inspiring, to be quite frank, and uh, you have a lot to be proud of, and America still has a lot to learn about, about Poland and its people, and God bless the Polish, and I can, I guess in the politically correct world, I must condemn those jokes as a child, and I apologize. <laughs> no, it's, it's totally fine, and I guess what I would say that's also quite fascinating about Poland uh, particularly was it was just polling, I think, that came out in the last week or so that was talk, looking at uh, the different European Union member countries and their views about capitalism and their views about the United States. And on both metrics, the most positive about the United States was Poland. Uh, so un unsurprisingly, they're very, they very much love the United States of America. But then also they topped the charts for love of capitalism, too. So, I mean, these guys really, I think, have some some good fundamentals kind of guiding them in, in some ways. So that's great to see. 
and, and, and obviously it's not for this show, but if you people get a chance, there are some great Polish heroes that, you know, in, in studying history, you just come across now. And it's, it's a vibrant country, and we're glad to have you on. But you are here to talk about new media. And the reason I took an interest in this is John and I, Big John, my partner here at Grumley's Media, we are both fantasy sports pioneers and entrepreneurs. At one time, my fantasy sports site was ranked in the top 2,000 in the world. I had no idea of the impact until I went to the senior bowl, and I had the big T-shirt of my company, and all these coaches were coming up to me. That was the impact we had. We were fantasy, but my company, uh, half of it was built around the NFL. So. People would ask me, well, what got this started? What, you know, what made you do it? That wasn't as important to me as I saw the change fantasy sports writers were making in the industry. Before fantasy sports, most writers wrote about the, the team, but from the perspective of their relations with either the player or the coaches. Uh, bad articles about the coaches, you could tell there was a dislike for that. Uh, the players, vice versa. And we saw that. So when the fantasy sports writer came along, and we've been around for years, you know, football was a big key for us, but, and people call me a geek, but the real geeks in that industry were the baseball geeks. But they really didn't make the play once we got commercialized because football is king. And we started writing on the data. And we changed the term big data. I will not take credit for it, but fantasy sports helped uh, modernize that term. Even though fantasy sports isn't necessarily big data like, like as it is today, but we helped bring that about because everything was data-based and we were right a lot of times. Statistically, you know, when you're 60, 40 or 70, 30, you're right, you may not be perfect. And now you look at sports writers today and they incorporate this data. Now, what makes them better than your average fantasy sports writer sitting at home in the basement is they have access to the players. So now they can add a dimension of data with what they know of the, of the players. The, the toughest question I had, or, or I'm sorry, when people would ask me, what's the hardest thing for you to, 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 to break down? I said, heart. I said, the guy can sit there and check off every criteria, but we don't know his heart. And that's when I advantage. Well, I'm proud to sit there and say, we changed the industry. And to me, even though we're going to talk more on the tech side and, and, and social media, to me, that was one of the aspects of the beginning of new media. And to toss in a little aside, back in that day, people don't realize or they don't want to remember the porn industry also helped change the landscape because we were at 33 or 28, 33, then 56, you know, you know, uh, uh, with the cable, uh, not the cable modems, but the telephone modems. And uh, so they were on the forefront of uh, trying to compress. We get the fastest downloads. So it's a fascinating uh, story in and of itself. However, from our perspective, most people look at it as the, the downfall of cable news ratings plummeting, social media rising, alternative news sources. In a nutshell, before we get into details and specifically into Tucker Carlson's emergence into new media recently, how do you break down uh, the, 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 the emergence of new media in, in your words? I think, I think that new media has actually played a transformational role in being able to disseminate the distribution of information in a decentralized manner. Right. That's the biggest thing that it had before new media was prevalent in the way that we understand it today. It was not possible. Um, and therefore, it meant that these cable companies had a lot of power uh, and also a lot of uh, you know pressure 
to go and perhaps have a very particularized message, presentation, format, etc. And new media kind of broke all those rules because it doesn't necessarily have to face the same kind of scrutiny. And I think that that's actually forcing a lot of change and innovation. You mentioned sports. I'm a massive football fan. I love fantasy <laughs> sports. Um, and we can certainly talk about beyond Tucker Carlson, that aspect of sports in new media and why I'm so excited about that. Um, I think that you cannot make it up in terms of the impact that it has and the ability. The thing that excites me most is that it has the ability to, for us to discover new voices, for new voices to actually even be part of that equation to begin with, and also to expose you to a lot of different kinds of voices and ideas out there, right? So your program is like one. Tomorrow, I'll be going on to the Young Turks to go and debate about AI, right? So you don't get that in old media uh, as easily, right? Uh, it's a lot harder to go, number one, get myself out there because there's a lot of people and limited airtime. Uh, but with the new media landscape, it's a lot easier for me to get out there and also to go and, and join people like the Young Turks, like you, like uh, other people, um, and go and talk about these issues. So it's, it's an incredible honor for me, one, but then two, it's just, it shows the power of this technology in new media so, so strongly. I agree wholeheartedly. In fact, uh, if you're going to podcast or you're going to do anything, researching is key. I've, even though I have a fascination and know this a lot, I research the new media and I also research the guests and I research you. And I think new media, as you stated, you have been given the opportunity to not only make a name for yourself, but more importantly, make an impact with your beliefs. You know, I saw your interview with Larry Sharp on Freedom Fest. Uh, I saw you on the Young Turks. Uh, and that's where, like, screw that guy. I don't agree with that <laughs> You know, but that's the whole point of diversity of opinions and beliefs. I think for us to, to grow as a country, to grow individually, we must see that. And new media offers us that uh, opportunity. And, and, and you are making a name for yourself. Uh, highly educated, but more importantly, highly intelligent. The way you quickly respond, the way, the way you know this, uh, uh, I'm grateful to have you. So with that said, though, do you, let's move on to Tucker Carlson. Let's just get to the heart of the issue here. Tucker Carlson, obviously, we all know back in April, was let go by, by Fox. And you know he was silent for, for a couple of weeks. Then he emerged on Twitter. And your initial thoughts just on his emergence on Twitter before we get into some deeper thought processes here. Yeah, I thought it made a lot of sense in a lot of ways. I mean, shortly before he did get uh, departed from Fox, he did have an interview with Elon Musk, and he was certainly very uh, high on his praise of the platform in and of itself. And it was always something that I thought was a possibility for Tucker because naturally with the way that these these companies set up their contracts with talent there's usually non-competes that say you can't go on to cnn after this or msnbc you've got to have like a cool off period before you can do that um but you know depending on how that conversation has unfolded some people think that there's a little bit of flexibility when it comes to you know doing your own thing on a twitter or on a youtube starting your own podcast so seeing him go there was actually not all that surprising but it was a it was an interesting development. I think for him, he thought that it was a, a website that has a lot of interaction, certainly is able to garner a lot of diverse takes, uh, which I think he thrives on. He loves having, uh, you know, whatever he's saying, good, bad, and different, uh, you know, being the, the subject of conversation. Uh, and Twitter is a platform where you can get that in spades. And that's why I think it made a lot of sense for him. And I, you know, I think that it certainly has benefited him in the days since. Most definitely. Uh, a little insight on that, uh, having worked in new media, working with various companies while owning my company, uh, you do have a non-compete clause, 
But sometimes when you've already become a brand, you can negotiate, well, this is mine. It's not, say, X companies, and I can do as I please on here. And depending on how big a name you are, depends on how much access to that. So one potential, and I'm speculating here, well, one potential situation is his Twitter account was his to do as he pleases. And yeah. Fox uh, acquiesced to that. I'm not saying this is what happened. This is one potential scenario. So upon leaving the contract, Fox has no hold on what he does on Twitter. It's it's you're a big football fan, Player News. My company was was uh, between us and Roadwire about the same time we came out with Player News. We dominated Player News. When I sold the company, the new ownership was looking to spread Player News in in other areas, and that's when they brought up to me. They said, "Well, William, the internet's just one medium." We have to negotiate a different contract if they use it on another medium. So I think that could be a possibility with Twitter. I also think Twitter's move to Carlson's move to Twitter is because it's one of the few platforms, in my eyes, that conservatives and libertarians still have a voice without being censored or or or, or, or blackballed or, or just removed from that presence. It, Take Threads, for example. They're already removing uh, conservatives there. And I don't really want to get into that battle. That's my opinion, so I don't want to put words in your mouth. But do you think that's also a possibility of why he went to Twitter? Yeah, well, I, I remember, again, going back to that interview with Tucker Carlson and Elon Musk. That was certainly one of the points that Tucker had raised on his own, is that he thought that uh, you know Elon's work since purchasing Twitter was uh, basically a great service towards trying to restore uh, free speech on the internet platforms. And, you know, I think that's been a very fascinating conversation to watch unfold. Obviously, Twitter's gone through uh, a few changes since Elon Musk has taken over, uh, if you will. Uh, and I think that, you know, um, there's definitely a lot more speech on there. I think that there's um, people that are trying to leverage that for their own gains to go and say that, for example, you always see like these reports pop out every once in a while about how hate speech is proliferating on Twitter. Um, but, you know, I, I think that some of the veracity of those studies are dubious at best. Uh, I think that, you know, again, free speech is one of those things that it's hard to encompass uh, in a platform that has advertising models as its foundational uh, thing because they don't want to be associated with bad content. You don't necessarily blame advertisers for that. Um, but, you know, if you're Elon Musk and you want to promote free speech, that means that you have to go and pursue things that can maybe insulate you from that. And I think that, broadly speaking, what we've seen also happen, too, is other companies are on the margins, perhaps, uh, following Twitter's lead in some ways. So we've seen, for example, uh, Meta roll back its policies around COVID misinformation. Uh, we've seen Google go and rescind its election, uh, uh, its election uh, policies on content. Um, and I think that that's a net positive for free speech on the margins. And then it's just, I, I think that the one thing that I would impress upon people in this particular conversation in general is that it, it, it is a marathon, not a hundred meter dash. It's going to take a while to go and get the kinds of changes that you want to see systemically incorporated. Um, you know, and, and you just have to keep up that good fight if you want to see more broad speech being on these platforms uh, as we're looking to the future here. You know, that, that's a very great point. And in fact, Part of the emergence of new media, as I was researching this for, for, for this podcast, some of the quotes I, I, I saw, uh, it lent itself to why there is a rise in new media. It, it wasn't unbiased writing about Tucker. It was very uh, biased. And, and, and I wrote down some of these. I just want to uh, 
I want to, I'm not going to say the magazine or the individual. I don't want to get into a personal battle and denigrate them. But these are quotes. If somebody said, William, we're taking your court, I can provide uh, where I got these from. But this is what they were saying in terms of reporting in, in regards to Tucker Carlson, the exact kind of bigotry and fear mongering he spewed for years at Fox News. That's not very uh, unbiased. They're, they're taking the side in how they view Tucker. Uh, from the moment the Murdochs decided that there was a limit in how much rogue behavior they were willing to tolerate from a nativist, conspiratorial, defamation adjacent modern day Father Kaufman with a soft spot for Putin. The reason I bring that up is I, as a conservative, when I read that, and I was born and raised in Panama as an American citizen who experienced, I say experienced because I did not live under the two dictators. I was the protected citizen because I was an American citizen. But I saw what these people did to my to, to Panamanians. And I saw the fear in my family. So when I see this vitriol from the, the, the journalists, I'm like, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be the warriors of the people and just present us with the information and i believe this type of intro and on both sides we've got to be realistic i'm a conservative but we're not all purists you know in the sense of uh we all walk in water every side has its bad apple but it seems now that that in 2000 i'm not sure how old you are james but in 2000 is when i saw the shift from the media from being a more neutral to 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 moving more towards a bias and i saw that because i used to watch msnbc and I eventually just kind of turned it off just after a year or two because I saw more and more bias. And my point to you is that this helped create the rise of new media. Am I overanalyzing or is there truth in what I say? No, not at all. I think that you're actually very spot on. I mean, you, you actually don't have the creation of Fox News without that baked in perception that you kind of highlighted there where conservatives felt like for years, even prior to 2000, that the, the, the quote unquote mainstream media was not giving them a fair shake in terms of the conversations that they wanted to have and that they were being unfairly casted in that conversation by the mainstream media. And therefore you see a dedicated conservative leaning news organization like Fox pop up to cover the news with a conservative angle uh, onto it. Right. And, and then once again, we see an evolution in the media landscape as time passes on. And, you know, conservatives feel like the traditional media, including Fox, doesn't quite get capture all the perspectives that conservatives might have. Uh, you know, there's, again, perverse incentives, I think, that kind of actually make the media companies have to do that. Um, but that's that's a situation that they face. And new media actually served as a great opportunity to open up a new avenue for conservative voices to actually become quite prominent. So notably, uh, the way I always look at it historically is that when we eliminated the fairness doctrine, that allowed for the rise of a Rush Limbaugh to pop up. That was massive for conservative uh, voice on that radio era. Now with the new media era, you can't go and have the new media era without Ben Shapiro. He's one of the most uh, influential uh, members of the right and he is prominent you know, he was prominent in old media settings too, but he really blew up in an online context. Um, you know, his company has obviously done phenomenally, and that is because they've had the new media outlets to go and actually quite, quite eloquently build out quite a model there at the Daily Wire. So this is something that I think is great 
and that's what you can expect to see. It's always going to be iterative, though, right? Because even in the new media landscape, we're still seeing some some of that old stuff creep in. Uh, because wherever there's, you know, can, uh, um, as uh, Taylor Lorenz would say, unfettered conversations going on, uh, somebody's going to want to go in and try to control those levers of power over how that conversation is being shaped and discussed, right? So I think that that's the nice thing about new media is that broadly, it, it does try to actually keep that hands-off feature as much as it can relative to the alternatives that are out there. I, I agree. Uh, and we're going to be talking, we're talking about Tucker Carlson, but taking a look at Twitter as well. Twitter was the beloved child of, of, of I, I don't want to put you in a position, but in my eyes, the left, you know, before Musk bought it. You know, it's, uh, a lot of conservatives were booted off. Uh, you know, the blue check marks were given to to to, to journalists, uh, preferably on the left-hand side. And then when Elon Musk bought it, all of a sudden, the sky is falling. Every tech glitch, you know, is the end of the world. Oh, he's running his advertisers off. He's this or that. The truth of the matter is, uh, these problems existed technologically before Elon Musk bought it. As far as the advertisers, Rush Limbaugh, they tried to do a uh, boycott of Rush Limbaugh. And I'm not sure if you've ever listened to Rush, but he went in depth on this. He says they got a team, they tracked down who, you know, how this was happening, and they literally tracked it down to a couple of dozen people, giving the perception of mm -hmm. tens of thousands of individuals. They went to their advertisers, they presented this, and their advertisers came back. Now, the caveat is, what many people don't realize is, Rush, during a week of broadcasting, would have 40 million viewers or listeners. You know, so the advertisers had a reason to come back. I believe that Musk, well, what I try to tell people, successful people like Rush Limbaugh, like Elon Musk, people who accumulate wealth because of their knowledge of capitalism and their own personalities, they know how to overcome this. And I truly believe these attacks on Twitter to try to diminish it will fail because I believe Musk will be able to figure out a way to monetize Twitter. What are your thoughts, one, on Twitter being able to be monetized and all of a sudden to turn around how Twitter and the sky is falling because of Elon Musk and Twitter. Yeah, so I, I, I guess what I would say with respect to the, the, the Twitter commentary, broadly speaking, is that, um, you know, if you look at the, the breakdown of the people that are on Twitter on average anyway, it, it was not like it was a conservative safe haven ever to begin with. Like if you were to make the Twitter user base of the United States, a, you know, a, a political district, it would be one of the most progressive districts in the entire country. Um, you know, so I, I think that there was always an ideological bent of the user base on Twitter uh, that existed, you know, ignoring all the other stuff of, you know, conservatives. Um, I think that conservatives are, are starting to get a little bit better at their digital game. Um, and that's <laughs> why we're seeing uh, some more willingness of conservatives to engage online than perhaps we might have seen in years past. Uh, they recognize the importance of the medium. Now it's just about understanding how to leverage it to the best capabilities. Um, with respect to Elon Musk buying Twitter, God bless Elon Musk in some ways because he gave me like probably single-handedly over a dozen media hits last year uh, talking about the process of him buying the company, not buying the company, suing to get out of the $44 billion and basically buying the company still for $44 billion. Uh, or sorry, uh, yeah, no, it was... Uh, I think it was 44 billion. Yeah, it was 44. There was a lot of billions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was. There were many billions involved. Um, it's been a minute since I looked at it. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that when he bought it, he did the mass layoffs. He's trying to... You know, remake the he did the Twitter files. There, there's a lot of things that he's trying to do with rebuilding the company's reputation uh, from his perspective with 
trying to give it a fresh start. Um, and certainly there were many in, in the media and in the left that were castigating all those decisions that said that, oh, you know, this could be the end of Twitter and advertisers were ditching it left and right. Um, you know, but the thing is that Twitter is a relatively durable uh, product and brand. It has a certain level of reputation. Um, advertisers, some advertisers have started coming back, uh, you know, even with the introduction of threads, we'll see how that transpires. It's not like the, the, the interesting thing about threads is that it's deliberately saying that it doesn't want to go and do political and, and, uh, you know, certain kinds of commentary there. Cause it just wants to be like, you know, the, uh, an Instagram light, if you will, except with text where it's all about cats and food and other things, not politics and don't necessarily blame them, uh, in that respect. But that means that, you know, Twitter's not going anywhere, at least not in my view, it still is a very po popular and powerful platform to get your message out there as a politician, um, as an advocate, etc. So I think that again, with Twitter, it's, it's a little unfounded. The company is going to be able to monetize. I think what they're hoping for, and they're struggling on this front, admittedly, is to your point about monetization, they want to get more people subscribing to Twitter Blue because if they can get more people to subscribe to Twitter Blue, then they can insulate themselves from that advertiser pressure that I was talking about before that might otherwise curb what kinds of content they might want to have on their platform. Problem is, is that when everything is a, a subscription service these days, You've got to go and be able to demonstrate to users quite effectively what's the value that you're bringing to them. And I think that there's a little bit of a disconnect there in terms of what Twitter Blue is offering for the subscription uh, to users um, that actually makes it worth the price. Um, so I think that, you know, it's 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 something that can be fixed. It's something that they can certainly work on. And I lord those that they are. Uh, but it is monetizable. It's just, you know, again, where it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's going to take some time to go. And I think for the company, at least to identify what are the kinds of things that users would like to see to justify giving you that eight to, you know, 11 bucks a month for the premium service. You know, you're right. And it, it, it's kind of funny in a way, because when the internet first started, the subscription model was still there because that's how old media was. And I think we had like 60,000 subscribers when I saw the company, you know, a free and, and, and paying, and they're popping $20 a month. But I salivate at today's subscription model of $5.99 a month. I mean, back then it was like, you know, for the football season, this is what the package costs. Now I'm like, I'd be really rolling in it, you know, with this model. But there's only so much money out there for the for the individual. But I do like Twitter Blue. We have uh, Grumbly's Media have Twitter Blue because we like the fact we can go edit. We like the fact we can change, uh, we can make it longer than the traditional tweet. So there's a lot of positives. And I do believe that will eventually work because uh, politics or any industry that, 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 that you love will induce somebody to want to get that type of subscription, especially at only $8 a pop. However, Elon's also looking at monetizing to the APIs. Now it's like $5,000 a month uh, and various other ways. A very astute man. The one comment I want to make in regards to Twitter that I tell people, we are humans. We are savage. At our core, we are savage uh, individuals. People don't understand that part of the reason the Roman Colosseum was, being, was built was as a release for a, a city of one million people with various cultures, believing in different gods of various lands, slaves, they needed a release for that savagery. They got it through the Colosseum. Twitter is the battleground for civilized society on the internet right now, where conservatives and Democrats can go battle it out. That alone makes it the top playground. As we saw threads, it's already century. 
places like Gab or Mastodon, or not Gab, places like Mastodon or Getter or True Social, you're talking to the like-minded individuals. So to me, there's always going to be limited growth because the fun is over at Twitter's playground. Now, one critic, uh, moving back to the, the Tucker, one critic said, oh, I'm sorry, do you have any comments on that in terms of uh, the Twitter being, being the battle place for the only battle place right now that, I, that I'm aware of where conservatives and Democrats and even libertarians can battle it out. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you're right. I think that Twitter is definitely the, the political, uh, you know, centerpiece when it comes to conversations online in many ways. Uh, lots of people like to go and duke it out there, including, uh, you know, yours truly. Uh, Lord knows <laughs> I was actually just tweeting today about uh, Lena Khan was in front of the, the House Judiciary Committee, and she's been absolutely atrocious. So I uh, had to go and opine my thoughts there. But I think that, again, it, it actually reminded me, uh, one of my one of my friends and former colleagues, Neil Chilson and, and Chris Koopman, wrote a piece talking and actually, you know, honestly calling Twitter the Coliseum. And that's the role of social media, to your point, in some ways, is to have that out um, for people. And also, just frankly, as a person who's been on the Internet for basically all my life, uh, as, a, as a young millennial, I'm 29, I've spent basically my entire life surrounded by technology and the Internet. I know that some people don't like the, the rhetoric that's being used online today, but I can't help but say it's relatively benign by comparison to like the kinds of things that I was hearing online growing up. Uh, you know, I feel like this is kids play by comparison. Uh, so in some ways to me, it's, it, it is a little funny insofar as just like, I'm like, this is really nothing. Like you gotta be able to compartmentalize this a little bit better, man. Cause I, what the stuff I was hearing playing video games was a lot worse than this. <laughs> well, you, you know, James, the down, and I am very guilty of it. I, I just said, I just threw off the, uh, 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 whatever the saying is, uh, the, the charade and I can be as, I'm an ex-liberal and I always tell people. I go Linskyite on on Twitter because I'm so angry at people calling my side racist people, and I'm Latina. You know, my grandmother was called the N-word when we moved when I when I first came to the states as a teen, and I had no clue what that word meant. And, and the reason I say that to show the diversity of my clan, my Panamanian clan. In fact, I'm my sister and I are the lightest ones in our clan, so we became objects, odd objects, you know, growing up. But my point being is. If somebody like me, who, who when I'm in person, you don't, it, it's a different persona, I'm polite. I, I wanna talk, I wanna talk the issues out. But man, when I get on social media, I become a different animal. So I don't know how we're going to overcome that type of negativity that tends to surface in us. Do you have any ideas? Have you ever thought of that? How, how people are different online behind the computer versus in person? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, well, I mean, the. As an economist, the way that I always frame it is that the cost to be bad is is very low online because uh, the accountability measures aren't the same thing. Like if I want to be horrible to you in person, that carries different connotations than <laughs> yeah. if I want to just tweet at you and like troll you. Yeah, well, exactly, right? The risk of violence is a lot higher in person if you just go dragging people uh, in public versus online. It's just a lot cheaper to do it because it's just not the same thing. So what I always look at, I mean, for the most part, I, I'm pretty consistent. Maybe it's just because I'm a, I'm a New Yorker, but the way I try to talk online versus how I operate in person, I try to keep it pretty consistent. I'll, I'll wear my feelings about topics on my sleeve, but um, kind of like my, my operatus, you know, my operation model is that I'll talk to anybody about anything. I want to have those conversations uh, and make people think about the things that I'm thinking about and answer those questions, if it, even if it makes them uncomfortable. Um, that's just me. But for more general people, I think it's just about learning how to learn to step away. Like you don't have to respond to every little thing. There are so many times when I'm online that people will go and make 
uh, very insulting commentary or say whatever about me. If it's a written piece that I've done, I've been called all kinds of names in the book. You've got to learn at some point to compartmentalize it, put it away, and be able to walk away, more importantly, because, again, everything on the internet is permanent. It can and will be used against you at some point in time. Uh, so I want to make sure that I'm not putting myself in a position where I'm, I'm compromised because of something I tweeted or or something to that effect. So just, you know, learn learn to just, uh, you know, think before you tweet, I guess, is the general rule. That's very sound advice, and, and to my uh, to defend myself and Big John, every once in a while we'll, we'll, we'll messenger to each other, I had to get off social media. I just can't yeah. take it. In my defense, the very weak defense, I will say, but I don't attack. I respond to attacks with vitriol because I get angry. Now, that's still wrong, but I, that's where I kind of give myself a little saving grace, but it is wrong. you know. But so, so getting back to Twitter and Tucker, though, uh, there was a critic saying, "Well, Tucker's just on Twitter to, to uh, because he's a, to preserve his influence." And my take is, "Well, isn't that what uh, 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 any personality is trying to do? Exert their influence?" Uh, so I think that a critique of that is is unfair because everybody does that. So, hmm. but that said. I also think it's an interim move, and it just came out, I want to say maybe that a few days ago, or last week actually, we're already on the ninth, so last week, that he, there are rumors circulating that he may be looking for investors to do his own thing. Uh, now that's taking uh, our new media conversation to the next level, you know, social media, Twitter, uh, Facebook and all that, but if he's looking to do a new venture, how do you perceive that? And, 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 and do you see that as an extension of new media or do you just see him maybe going back to TV? Well, I think that it's a hybridization of everything in, in many ways, right? I mean, he's building off of his brand and reputation as uh, Tucker Carlson, the host of Fox News uh, over the last you know several years, uh, and he is trying to capitalize on that. I think he's also leveraging Twitter to demonstrate that he has a platform where he can go and reach a lot of people. Um, I think his tweets, uh, on average, whenever I've seen his like little episodes come out, have performed extraordinarily well. Um, I know his first episode, by the time I looked at it back when, had over 100 million views on it. Now that doesn't necessarily translate out to how many people were watching the video or how long they watched the video. That's that. Those metrics are a little bit harder to track with new media uh, than with traditional media through the Nielsen boxes, but uh, still very impressive stuff. And you can go to an investor with that and, and certainly argue that we can go and build uh, you know, a production company or whatever it is that Tucker's looking to do because here's my name, here's my model, here's what we've been able to accomplish, and here's the kind of people that we can expect to go and, and touch. And the cool thing with Twitter uh, for Tucker, and this is why I don't think that he would just stop and go back to cable news, is that in many ways it actually lets him go and connect with the broader audience outside of what just Fox News had to offer him. Fox News at that slot had a very particular demographic and Twitter's demographic certainly contains part of that Fox News audience, but then it also contains Gen Z Republicans, millennial Republicans, um, a different audience that have different tastes, different interests, different conversations that they want to be having. And I think that that's something that Tucker might be very interested in wanting to do, and I don't blame him. It's a great opportunity for him. So I think that there's a, it's basically a hybridization of his, basically his career's work. Right, right. I, I can see that. Uh, going half a step back, uh, somebody's tweeted out uh, or, or stated uh, to an individual in terms of trying to diminish Tucker by stating, well, Tucker looks much smaller on a, on a Twitter screen than he does on television. And my take is fair enough, you know, uh, uh, you can say that. But at the end of the day, social media 
has actually enhanced television. Uh, remember the SNL uh, uh, skit, the one with uh, uh, Sandberg and Justin Timberlake, D in a box. That got hundreds of, or tens of millions of views. Uh, uh, oh gosh, the, uh, I'm drawing a blank, help me here. The, the Comedy Central, the first was John Stewart. His, his fame actually came more because of those snippets on social media then his show, because his show was only averaging what, a couple million, you know. So, so how new media extends the TV platform is something I believe TV should be grateful for. Uh, your thoughts on that? But let me ask the second part: is the monetization? Hmm. My issue with the internet, we can track everything to the to the nth degree. Television, they still can't tell you exactly the demographics or how long, or maybe they can now, but we don't know. But, but my point to you is, I remember getting frustrated. Uh, you know, like we had 12, back in the 90s, we had 12 million people visiting, unique users visiting our site. And I get depressed. We have all these people, but yet we're getting pennies on the dollar versus what TV, a TV show that gets much less audience. How do you see that changing in terms of new media eventually catching up to that? Yeah, the, the, those those were actually the latter question, especially is, is really fascinating. I, I think that it's a question of like advertisers understanding what they're paying for, like that the reason why the valuations are different for live TV is just that, again, there that the, there's a certain certainty that like Nielsen's providing you that like, oh, you get like you know you have a hard number of one million people were live and concurrently watching your advertisement for Charmin paper towels right like we know that for Twitter again you know Tucker's video got a hundred or rather his tweet uh, about that first episode had a hundred million impressions on it so a hundred million people saw it and if there was an advertisement in there you know in theory if every single person that viewed that tweet viewed the video a hundred million people looked at it um, you know, so the valuation is a little bit different because of the scale, uh, but also because there's less certainty. And then, you know, so I think as it becomes a little bit clearer in terms of how many people are watching and the online medium becomes more mainstay than the cable box, if you will. Uh, you know, we used to say cutting the cord when we were going to the streaming services. Um, I, I think that that might go and shift the advertising model a little bit in terms of what advertisers care about. And maybe that might go and put more value in terms of what is the you know price per view or whatever that the advertiser is willing to pay for. So that remains to be seen. When it comes to the, the the technical aspects of Tucker being on Twitter, oh he's smaller, whatever. It's a TV studio, man. Like they got they got you know multiple staff to go and figure out how to make you look as amazing as humanly possible. Now you know he's just starting out, and this is like literally him doing it from his cabin, I think, in in some random part of the country. And like you know, I'm, I'm just like it's him. I know his producer, uh, and like you know, maybe one or two other people. I don't know how big his thing is, but I, I highly doubt it was the dozens of people that they had working on Tucker Carlson tonight at Fox. Right? It's just the scale is radically different. So you shouldn't expect a one to one translation from what happened at Fox to look at what happened at Twitter. That's not going to happen overnight. Even Ben Shapiro's early stuff does not look like what it looks like today and today he's actually closer to what a fox production might look like than what tucker is right he has an entire company a multi multi multi-million dollar company that goes and helps him and the rest of his talent at daily wire look amazing um and tucker could very well get there especially if to your point he's able to go and convince investors to go in with him to create some other kind of product out there right so that's maybe when that's something that happens down the road Maybe that's where we go and see, 
you know, the more formalized kind of production process where he might look like Tucker Carlson from Fox again. But honestly, I don't think that the, your average viewer, specifically your Gen Z or millennial viewer, let alone anybody else, is actually noticing or caring about the optics of how he looks or presents or something like that. Right, right. And, and it's, uh, you keep mentioning Ben Shapiro, uh, and, and I agree. Uh, but just to inform the people, before the Daily Wire, uh, it was Breitbart was kind of one of the first ones. Uh, they kind of went off the grid there during the 2016 elections by taking a side in the conservative battle by, by really pushing Trump. But then there's also The Blaze with Glenn Beck, and then the Daily Wire. And it seems like every iteration has gotten better. So, so there should be great future here for Tucker. Uh, I know your time is limited, but I wanted to ask you this very extremely important question. I am a true blue conservative, but having seen two dictators, I've always felt the belief of knowing that journalism, there are warriors, but most importantly, we have to hear the truth regardless of, of, of how it may hurt us. For example, when a conservative side does something bad or they get caught in a lie, I cringe. I was like, ah, you know. And right now, one of the downsides of new media is it's tribalism, meaning you go here for your news and hear the same like-minded voice. You go there. And again, Twitter to me is one of the few spaces where you can battle it out. But how does new media overcome the tribalism we're seeing happening in it? How do they get back to or how do they even start doing objective uh, journalism? Yeah, I think that that's a good question, and it's something that we're starting to see kind of formulate a little bit, um, whether it's uh, Barry Weiss and the Free Press or Matt Taibbi going through Substack, uh, you know, uh, what what um, what Elon Musk was calling, uh, what was it, like uh, uh, independent journalism or I forget what the, what the actual term citizen was. Citizen journalism. Was, there we go, citizen journalism. Uh, I think that when you see that emerging more, and particularly as it grows to scale and becomes more successful, I think that that's actually where you might see pressure to try to cudgel these these traditional media outlets back to more less crazy than what they might currently be. And I guess, if you will, and, and I actually think that the best example you could see of this was actually with CNN after uh, they had to switch in CEO. Uh, and he was trying to, you know, they obviously they hosted Trump for the town hall. That did not go well for him. It ultimately cost the CEO his job. But uh, the company is trying to pivot to figure out, like, how do we go and regain? Because, like, right now it's MSNBC, NBC, you know, CBS. All those guys are very left of center. And, like, there's only so many left of center people to go and get, if you will. So, like, you know, you got to figure out how you can go and get there. But as these other publications, New York Times, Washington Post, have to go and face increasing pressure from like the free press or the Matt Taibbi and Substack Citizen journalisming uh, getting to be to a better spot. I think it also makes them have to rethink about how they're telling the news or at least I think what I can, I can, I don't mind if you're going to be slanted in terms of how you're going to cover something, but don't go and hide underneath the veneer journalism to do it. Just go and say that you have a particular perspective and lens when you're doing it. So that way people can be informed. Um, you know, I know that I like going to Ben Shapiro just so happens that, you know, he, he is definitely the most prominent one. I feel bad for not mentioning the blaze because I, my first op-ed I ever did was actually on Glenn Beck's site uh, way back then. <laughs> you stabbed so, him in the back, James. Yeah, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's it's my fault. But, um, you, know, you know, it's just one of those things that I think it, it will get better with time because it has to. Because the other aspect to this conversation, at least when it comes to both the, the cable companies and traditional newspapers, is that they're struggling in this digital era. So they have to innovate or become irrelevant. And that means that they're going to have to go and drop their partisan lens and try to reach out to other people to get more folks or 
they'll just be rendered to a smaller size or worse out of existence. Um, they right, don't really have right. a bright future otherwise. Uh, I'm not going to push back, but my take on CNN is they've got to get rid of everybody there. Here's why. First of all, they've been caught lying by trying to pretend to be objective, and they're not. I mean, I agree with you. Either be left or right, at least be open about it. But two, when you see uh, Anderson Cooper, not Don Lemon anymore, but when you see those same familiar faces, it doesn't matter what you tell the audience. When they see those faces, they're going to associate it with leftism, you know, right or wrong. So I think that's why the CEO failed and why he failed completely. I don't think he was trying to change CNN. He was trying to just give a new veneer, a new cover on the face. Uh, I'm not saying I'm right, but that, you know, that's how I see it. An interesting point on the newspaper, uh, they just tabled uh, California here a yeah. bill to tax mm -hmm. uh, uh, the big wigs, the tech giants, yeah. to subsidize Newspaper. So you're aware of that. Do you want to yep. uh, uh, chime in with that on your thoughts on that and, and relate to the yeah. audience what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So what you were referencing there was this uh, bill. Bill number slipping my mind off the top of my head, but it was it, the name of the bill was the California Journalism Preservation Act. It is basically a state level equivalent of a federal proposal, which was the the JCPA, the Journalism and Competition Preservation Act. And what these pieces of legislation seek to do, as you uh, so succinctly put it, is basically have big tech subsidize uh, big media to go and, uh, you know, keep them up floating because we allegedly care about local journalism or something. Uh, and the reality is, is that kind of as I'm insinuating here, it doesn't do that. Number one, you're treating the tech companies like a cash cow, which sounds nice in theory, but they're, you're assuming that they're going to be there forever and that they can afford your bills. And, uh, you know, not for nothing, but Meta has a serious problem getting younger users to go and use Facebook, let alone anything else. So that's not necessarily guaranteed. Um, and you're not actually solving the underlying problem of local journalism. What I actually think is the biggest issue here when it comes to local journalism failing um, is that you have all of our federal delegation taking a state level issue or a local issue and making it a federal issue. And the more that you do that, the more that you take every single issue that you can possibly find and make it a need for the federal government to address, you are actually removing something that the state can go and do something about, which means that there's less things for your local and state journalism outlets to do when it comes to covering what's going on in your state that are impacting you, your people. So I think that this is where these kinds of legislative proposals fall short. Uh, Buffy Wicks is no no great legislator, in my opinion, when it comes to dealing with any of these kinds of things. Um, but that's what she's trying to do. She's trying to force what's called a link tax. Uh, if you are on Meta's website for Facebook and I share you know, a link to the podcast or you know, a link to the New York Times, uh, Facebook would be required to go and pay the New York Times for having that link be on there. And they also can't not let me share that link on Facebook either is what the way that that journalism would say. So it's a must carry and a must pay style piece of legislation. It would be challenged almost immediately if it were ever signed into law. Uh, and it would probably, you know, fail and get struck down on First Amendment grounds. Um, it's a very problematic piece of legislation, so it's very important that people stay aware of it. I don't think that you want to be in the position of allowing, um, you know, papers to cartelize and try to force big tech to pay. That's not letting them innovate and become more productive and more uh, influential in terms of servicing their communities. It's just basically subsidizing them to keep being bad the way they currently exist. Exactly, and and this is me speaking to the audience, not James. I also believe <laughs> papers are pretty much lean more left, and I'm like, you know, my belief is if people aren't buying it, maybe they want more unbiased news. There's a reason, and I'm like, by subsidizing them, you're not 
they're not going to change their ways. Oh, we're, you know, they're subsidizing us. We don't have to change our ways. We don't have to innovate. We don't have to be unbiased. We don't have to be a bunch of things. So I think from that from that perspective also, it's it's wrong. So before I let you go, though, and you've been a great guest, uh, as I said, when I research you, I, uh, John uses the word wonk, but not in a bad way, meaning you know your stuff. Very impressive stuff, James, and I truly appreciate you coming on. Before you leave, does Tucker make it in new media or, or in terms of regaining the lofty status and prestige he had when he was at Fox? Did, will, will he achieve that again here? Yeah, I think ultimately I think he will. Um, I think like anything else, it'll just take time, uh, especially right now with Fox trying to litigate over him doing this whole Twitter thing. Um, it's going to take time. But Tucker is Tucker. There's a reason why he was in the position that he was prior to let, being let go by Fox. Um, he's very influential amongst the, the right side of the aisle. Um, so I think that regardless of what he does next and how it, you know, uh, formulates, he will still be a figure uh, for many years to come. So it's something that we'll have to keep an eye on as we're looking forward. Outstanding. And the final question, how can the audience find more of James, the proud Polish Charnowski? <laughs> yeah, you can always go and follow me on Twitter. That's the best space uh, to go and see my musings on uh, political matters when it comes to tech policy. Uh, that's at JamesCZ19. Uh, and... I, I also have an affiliation with Young Voices, which is a great nonprofit organization. And you can always go to their website and look at my profile there at youngvoices.org uh, and see you know, all the latest media hits and writings that I'm up to there. So again, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and a pleasure talking with you about all of this. Oh, and, and with the Young Voices, to let the audience know, James does not just do conservative or libertarian shows. I saw him on Young Turks. You know, that's more a progressive show. So he's willing to go anywhere, and as you saw, his knowledge. James, thank you for being on the show. I am truly grateful. And to the audience, uh, one more plug for James. He did our free-for-all podcast on Section 230. And that is, he did that with Big John, the company founder, and Bob Zadig. A lot of good stuff there. And also check out our podcast. Uh, the big question, the interview show, big questions with Big John. He has a lot of libertarians there. He just actually interviewed a conservative congressional candidate. So we try to bring you everything, maybe not so much progressive stuff, but libertarian and conservative stuff. And don't forget to see us at Grumblings Media and our sports site, sportsgrumblings.com. And to everybody, thank you for tuning in. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>